You're listening to audio from Stapleton Baptist Church. If you would like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit stapletonbaptistchurch.org. We pray this message blesses you. I mentioned in our first week as we began studying Genesis that this book of Genesis gives us much more than just a interesting history of the world. Sometimes we can think of Genesis as just that uh, those strange stories at the beginning of the Bible that, that give us uh, a peek into how everything began. And while it certainly does give us some crucial information about creation, it does a lot more than that. Genesis actually speaks to some of the most foundational questions of life, as well as some of the hottest topics debated today. It answers some of the perennial questions of humanity, like what is life? What, is, what does it mean to be human? What's our purpose? Is there a higher power? We've already seen just in the first chapter of Genesis that it addresses a lot of those questions in one way or another. But it also speaks into some of the hottest, most divisive topics in our culture today, like gender, sexuality, marriage, roles of male and female. And as Christians, when it comes to those different kind of issues, we have to look at the world and process the world around us through a biblical lens. What is right and what is true is not determined by a political party, any activist group, any CEO, or any professor or a president. What is right and what is true is determined by God. And His Word is not silent on these issues either. The verses Brandon just read for us declare God's intentional and purposeful design for mankind. It's the blueprint for human flourishing. It would not be an exaggeration to say that Genesis 2 is one of the most vital passages in the whole Bible for understanding the world we live in. And it's foundational for understanding things like marriage and sexuality. When Jesus spoke about marriage, Genesis 2 is where he quoted from. The Apostle Paul frequently appealed to the truth of Genesis 2 when teaching on marriage and addressing the roles of the sexes. So we would be wise today to pay attention to this same fountain of truth. And my plan for us today is to first walk through this passage of verses so that we understand exactly what is happening in Genesis 2, and then after that, for us to briefly consider some of the relevance for us today. So let's begin by picking up where we left off last week. We'll uh, go back, rewind just a few verses to Genesis 2, verse 4. So look with me beginning in verse 4. It says, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. That phrase, these are the generations, that phrase is an important phrase that we actually find 11 different times in the book of Genesis. And each time it's used, it really indicates a new section of the book. Usually it'll say something like, these are the generations of Adam, or these are the generations of Noah, or someone else. But here this first time, it's still referring to the time of creation. We can really look at Genesis 2-4 through the end of chapter 4 as one literary unit. It goes together. 
And here in chapter 2, we see that the author is taking us back into the creation story again and zooming in on one particular moment in creation, the creation of mankind. And here we find some incredible detail on how God formed man and then later woman. So look with me at verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God had formed the man of the du- or from the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Two things to note here. First, we get an interesting picture of the earth before man was made. It was not formless and void like it was at the beginning of creation, but it is still somewhat wild or desolate. And the reason is because there's no man to work the ground yet. The earth earth isn't created automatically with nice rows of planted crops. Instead, the land is waiting for something. It's waiting for the creation of man. You see, creation is not complete without humanity. We are not an accident, nor are we an imposition on the planet. Mankind wasn't made for the planet. The planet was made for mankind. The second thing to note is that we have a new name used for God here. In the English, it says the Lord God. In chapter 1, all we saw was it saying God. And your Bible likely has the word Lord in all capitals, a little smaller uh, font, but all capitals. And in chapter 1, it only referred to God using the Hebrew word Elohim, which is the generic word for deity. It literally just means God. But when it says Lord in all caps, that means that in the Hebrew there, it's using the name Yahweh, which is not generic at all. Yahweh is the personal covenantal name for God used by the Israelites. So it seems that the writer Moses is emphasizing that Yahweh and Elohim are the same God, the same God who created the universe and breathed life into mankind is the same God who enters into personal relationships with his people. He is Yahweh, Elohim. He is the Lord God. So an important thing to note there. So the land is unworked. It's still wild. But then it says the Lord God formed the man. And notice how he formed him. God does two things. First, he formed him from the dust of the ground. Mankind is intimately tied to the earth. God uses the dust from the earth to make the man. The Hebrew word for ground here is Adama, and the word for man here is Adam, which is where we get the name Adam from. Man was meant to directly identify from the earth from which he came, but that's not all God did. Mankind isn't just formed from the dust and then left lifeless. Then God breathes life into the man and he becomes a living creature. So there is this special care taken by God in the forming of man. It's almost this picture of a potter forming something out of clay, how God forms the man out of the dust. 
But God doesn't stop there. He doesn't form the man and then kick him out into the world to survive on his own. Instead, God plants a garden in a place called Eden, and God puts the man in the garden, then causing every kind of tree that is, it says, pleasant to the sight and good for food to spring up. So while the man still has not worked the land yet, God already begins providing for him from the moment he forms him. And then we have the mention of two, two somewhat mysterious trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but it doesn't really give us any more detail at the moment on those. So God places the man in this wonderful garden made to sustain him, and it's an incredible place. It has all the fruit-bearing trees, and it's well-watered. Look at verse 10. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. And there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon, which is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. These verses, it may seem like random detail, but they're important for establishing the literalness of this account. Some people attempt to say the first few chapters of Genesis are mythological or they're allegorical, but we see from details like this that the garden was a literal place. Now, at the same time, no one knows exactly where it was located, but it's clearly located somewhere in what was ancient Mesopotamia or today's Middle East. Now, pick back up in verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So we find that God didn't place the man in the garden just to have an eternal vacation. He places the man in the garden and he gives him a job a command and a warning. He gives him a job, a command, and a warning. His job is to work and keep the garden. What's interesting is that those two verbs, to work and to keep, are used later on to describe the work of the priests in the tabernacle. It seems that this work that Adam was given to do wasn't just work for the sake of work. It was a spiritual act of service to God. God's placing him in the garden with a purpose. He's entrusting man with stewarding and maintaining and protecting his garden. But it also comes with a command. He can eat of literally any tree in the garden, implying even the tree of life, but he must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And there's a warning with it that if he eats of that particular tree, he will surely die. Now, when we're considering this job and this command, we have to remember this is given before sin ever enters the world. There's no curse yet on creation. So whatever kind of work was entailed by working and keeping the garden, it was not burdensome in any way. I'm sure that some of us in here think of work as a burden. It's something that drains you. It's something that's frustrating. Maybe it's a, just a means to an end to support your family. But we see that work was actually a God-given responsibility to Adam and before the fall, it would have been nothing but a joyful act of service back to God. 
And when it comes to the command to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you may think, well, of course he's going to eat from the tree. You've, you've told him he can eat from everything except for that one tree, so naturally he's going to want to eat from that one tree. That's what we do as humans. You give us one thing we can't do, and that's what we want to do. It's the forbidden fruit. We may think God is setting up Adam to fall, but remember, this is before sin ever enters the world and corrupts humanity. When we think it's inevitable he will fail, that's because we're thinking of the reality of a fallen world where humans are naturally bent towards disobedience and towards sin. But here, Adam is sinless. He's essentially perfect. And God giving this command isn't baiting Adam. Rather, it's God establishing an even deeper relationship of trust with man. God is the sovereign, holy creator. He has formed man, made a garden for him to live in. He has given him a purpose. And there's no reason why the man would have any inclination to do anything else than joyfully serve and obey God. Adam has true free will and the opportunity to remain in complete harmony with his creator. Well, now let's get to verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Think back to chapter 1 in the days of creation. What was the common refrain we saw there on each day? It was the phrase, and it was good. Each day of creation, God declares that it was good. And on the sixth day, he declares that it was very good. So when we get to verse 18, it should stand out in strange contrast when God actually says that something is not good. And what is not good is the fact that man is alone. When God declared that things were good, it meant that they fulfilled their created purpose and function. They were fit for what they were designed to do. So God saying it's not good that man is alone meant that Adam cannot fully fulfill his God-given purpose by himself. And what is that purpose? From chapter 1, we saw man's kind purpose was to be fruitful and multiply, subdue the earth, and exercise dominion. Mankind is meant to multiply and rule and fill the earth with other image bearers of God. But man cannot do that by himself. So so the solution is for God to find a helper fit for him, to make a helper fit for him. Now, the word helper doesn't sound too impressive in the English language, but it's not anything demeaning in any sense of the word. This helper is someone who will play a vital role in helping Adam accomplish his God-given purpose. In fact, the Hebrew word used here for helper is most often used in the Old Testament to refer to God himself as our helper. So there's nothing disparaging about the word. But you can kind of sense some tension building from here. God brings every animal and bird to man for him to name them. But look what it says in verse 20. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Imagine all the hundreds and hundreds of different animals and birds coming to Adam. He has the task of giving them all names. He sees elephants, giraffes, pigs, goats, iguanas, penguins, hawks, rabbits, dogs, on and on. 
But as he names every animal, he doesn't find a single one who's a suitable helper for him. There's no creature in all of creation that can complete the man and help him fulfill his purpose. So God steps in again. And in verse 21, it tells us, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So throughout chapter 1 and 2, we've seen God creating and forming and building and even gardening. But now God performs some surgery. He causes the man to go into a deep sleep, and as he sleeps, takes one of his ribs, or in the Hebrew, it kind of makes it sound like takes from his side, and closes it back up with flesh. And notice the woman is made in a completely unique way. The other living creatures were called forth from the earth, and God even made Adam from the dust of the earth. But here he makes woman from something else that's already living. He makes her from man. This is important because it shows us that there was nothing wrong with how God had created man. Man was made in the image of God, and he was the pinnacle of creation. The problem was that man was alone. But rather than God going back to the drawing board and creating something entirely new and different, he creates something the same but different. That's why in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says the man is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. The perfection of woman highlights the perfection of man because she was made for man. And then comes the grand reveal. The man was not consciously involved in the making of the woman in any way. Remember, he was in a deep sleep, but now he awakens and God presents her to the man. John Piper likens this to God giving away the first bride because it says he brought her to the man. For a lot of people, the favorite part of a wedding is when the doors open and the groom sees the bride in the dress for the first time. And it's a moment of sheer joy. The moment has finally come. But now place that on a completely different level. The man has never even seen this creature, a woman, before. He's never seen any creature like this in all of creation. All the creatures have come to him. He studied them. He has named them. But here comes something completely new. And she is beyond anything he could have ever imagined. It's obvious that she is the perfect helper for him. And he declares in response in verse 23, This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. The whole chapter, in a sense, has been building to this point where we first hear the man speak. And he speaks in a poetic way that underscores the perfection of what God has done in creating a helper for him. And he says, at last. I couldn't help but imagine the song, at last, playing in the background. At last, my love has come along. My lonely days are over. Life is like a song. Man is no longer alone. The man immediately recognizes that this creature is part of him. She is like him in a way that nothing else is. She is bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. She is the same, yet she is different. And he names her woman because she was taken out of man. And just like there is a pun in the English language of man and woe man, 
There's also one in the Hebrew. The Hebrew word for woman here is Isha, and the Hebrew word for man is Ish. So even in the naming of the woman, the man is highlighting the attachment between the two. And this declaration from the man is followed with a narrative statement in verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. It would make sense to assume that Moses, the author, places this comment in there. But when Jesus references this verse in Matthew, he attributes that statement to God himself. The institution of marriage is not a social construct. It is the divine ideal for how the creation mandate is to be fulfilled. One man and one woman coming together is how mankind will accomplish the task of being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth. And the chapter closes with a statement, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, I know that verse might make us grin sometimes, thinking about naked and, ashamed, naked and not ashamed, imagining Eden as some sort of nudist colony originally. And that's because nakedness for us is associated with shame. But here at the final end of creation, this simple statement captures the perfection and the innocence of humanity as it initially, as it initially was. This is man and woman in perfect harmony with one another and with God, and there's not one hint or shadow of sin to be found. We can't even begin to fathom the joy and freedom that that kind of relationship would have. Even the best marriages today are still marked by the effects of sin. Even the best marriages still have bad days. Even the best marriages still have the pressure to meet expectations and fulfill duties. They still struggle to lay aside pride and to serve one another. But here in the garden, there is no sin, so there is no shame. That's why we'll see in the next chapter, once the man and woman sin, the first thing they recognize is their nakedness, and they try to cover themselves. The innocence is gone, but for now, all is perfect. There is nothing but innocent delight in one another in the good gift of marriage that God has given them. He's created the perfect helper fit for man. She is the perfect complement to aid him in fulfilling their purpose. And it's now that creation is finally complete. And it's perfect. And this crescendo of perfection in chapter 2 serves to set us up for just how much is lost when sin enters the picture in chapter 3. So that's the detailed account of the creation of man and woman. Now, what do we do with this information? How is this relevant for people like you and I living on the other side of the world thousands and thousands of years later? Something I've come to realize more and more about Genesis, especially these first three chapters, is that these passages are absolutely crucial for us to properly understand the world around us, to understand the meaning of existence how things were meant to be, how they were messed up, how they still should be. These chapters aren't just stories. They are blueprints for how God has designed his creation to operate and to flourish. And blueprints are vital. What happens if a contractor doesn't follow the plans when building a building? What if the plans call for two-by-fours, but he opts for two-by-twos instead? 
What if the plan calls for reinforced concrete, but the contractor opts for clay or sand instead? No proper contractor would ignore the plans and still expect the same product, the same outcome. When you adopt different blueprints, you inevitably get a different building. And so it's the same when mankind rejects the blueprints of creation. We can't expect humanity to flourish and operate like it was designed to. And that's exactly what we see happening in the world around us and especially in our own country. So I want us to consider a few things about gender and a few things about marriage from here in Genesis. And I'll attempt to do so with the same spirit of John 1.14 that says Jesus came full of grace and truth. I want to speak the truth in grace. I realize that even in a room this size, there's probably a wide variety of backgrounds and experiences represented. There's probably a wide variety of marital experiences, both successes and failures, both joys and sorrows. I also assume that when it comes to questions about gender and sexuality, this topic may hit closer to home for some. Maybe it's even an area of particular pain or confusion for yourself. So I want to speak with grace, yet at the, t- the same time speak unashamedly the truth of God's word. So let's first begin with marriage, because it was the institution of marriage that was first undermined in our country. Marriage has fallen on hard times in our culture. I don't think anyone would deny that. It's really now seen as nothing more than a lifestyle choice that some might make, rather than being the natural route for beginning a family. And the degradation of marriage began many decades ago as our culture was desensitized to divorce. Divorce became easier and more culturally acceptable, and it naturally undermined the meaning of the covenant of marriage. And from there, as the meaning of marriage became more pliable, it wasn't a stretch to think that, well, why does marriage have to be between a man and a woman? And now in our culture, homosexual marriage is old news. It's taken for a given. That's almost, that ship is completely sailed. But yet the revolution keeps moving forward, and some jurisdictions in our country already are making room for marriage between more than just one or two, or two people. It can be more than two, and the speed of this revolution is really astonishing. There are exceptions, but in general, for all of human history, the understanding was that the family unit was the building block of society, and it was understood that comes from a man and woman coming together. But there's some of you in here today who are old enough to have seen this entire revolution happen in just your lifetime. And it's a rejection of God's blueprint for human flourishing. It's obvious from verse 24 that marriage is not a social construct. Of course, in our legal system, it is documented as a legal relationship, but marriage ultimately does not belong to the state or to any government. Marriage belongs to God. He's the one who created it. He brought the first woman to the first man and joined them together. And it automatically, in Genesis, begins using the word wife. And they complemented each other in a perfect way to fulfill the purpose of multiplying. God's design was for marriage to purposefully lead to procreation. That's why woman is the helper fit for man. They literally, biologically fit together in a way that man and man don't. In a way that woman and woman don't. 
Man did not need just a companion to subdue the earth. Adam didn't need another man. He didn't need a bro to help him turn the garden into a man cave. Instead, he needed a woman to perfectly complement him. So not only is it clear in Scripture that God's design of marriage is one woman and one man, but natural theology and physical biology testify to it as well, the way God has literally created us. It takes a man and a woman to create a human. And of course, marriage has many other God-giving blessings along with it, but procreation is the underlying intent. Human life literally cannot flourish and continue apart from this. And from that comes the divine ideal for a household where children are reared by a mother and a father. And the statistics are well documented showing the negative effects of things like fatherlessness or divorce on children. Yet our culture keeps furthering the destruction of marriage. But we as Christians must hold firm to the truth of God's good design. We must value and affirm God's design for marriage like never before. And that first starts with us valuing and strengthening our own marriages and treating the marriage covenant with the utmost respect and seriousness. If God's people don't champion marriage, then who will? If we care about human flourishing, we must care about the institution of marriage. And then a brief word on gender. A sexual revolution made an easy transition from transforming marriage to then transforming what it means to even be male and female. The word gender itself is used today in a way that would have made very little sense to generations past. The word most commonly used in the past for male and female categories was the word the sexes. There were the two sexes, male and female, and gender was more of a grammatical term. But now gender has been introduced as an additional category and then gender, gender identity as a further category. To put it in their own terms, according to Planned Parenthood's website, sex is a label given to you by a doctor at birth based on your biology. Then gender is the societal expectations that go along with your assigned sex. Then gender identity is how you actually feel inside and how you express those feelings. And because your sex might not align with your gender identity, it creates the category of transgender. And now the sexual revolution is full steam ahead with championing the rights and the progress of transgender people, while at the same time still undermining any confidence we have in a binary world of male and female. They're changing the blueprint And when you look at the creation account, there's no distinction between sex, gender, and gender identity. There is only one whole complete person created just as they were meant to be. And there are only two sexes, male and female. This is first mentioned in Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. There are two and only two distinct sexes. That verse is quoted again later in Genesis 5, 2, and that's what Jesus quotes in Matthew 19, 4. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And here in chapter 2, God makes man and then makes woman who is clearly distinct from man. It automatically begins using different pronouns for them, he and she, him and her. She's given a similar but different name. And this is not a social construct either. 
This is biological reality rooted in the creation design. There are two sexes designed and created by God, and they're designed to perfectly complement one another, particularly in the task of being fruitful and multiplying. And to observe the male and female bodies and somehow determine that there must be an additional category is to completely reject not only truth, but also rational thought. And we're witnessing firsthand in our culture that when you reject the blueprints for human flourishing, the building starts to fall apart. We see it leading to moral insanity. So we should be alarmed when bathroom signs no longer matter. We should be alarmed when biological males are allowed to compete in women's sports. We should be disturbed when school districts are asking children what their preferred pronouns are. And the reason is not just because we may call ourselves conservative or some political party, and it's not just because we're angry, but it's because we believe it's a rebellion against God's good and perfect design and His creation. We're outraged because we actually care about those people. Now, if we get that wrong and we're just angry because we're angry, that doesn't serve anyone. But it's because we want the good for our neighbor. And God has shown us the blueprint for human good and life and flourishing. And we want that for all mankind. And when the blueprint is ignored, the outcome will not be the same. When God's design is ignored, it doesn't lead to life and flourishing Instead, it eventually leads to pain and suffering. So let us, as the people of God, hold tight to the truth and God's good design. Not just out of tradition or conservatism, but out of concern for others. Because in God's blueprint, it's the only place we find the path to true life and the flourishing of mankind. Would you pray with me?